Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, my guest today has been on the channel before. I'm very pleased he's come back to speak to us again. Uh, Victor Davis Hansen is one of America's preeminent conservative commentators. He's also an historian, a military historian, and a classicist, and he is senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's the author as well of numerous books, including the best-selling The Case for Trump. His new book is called The Dying Citizen. It's out on October the 4th. You can order it on Amazon. And uh, he's with me now. Um, thank you very, very much for joining us, Victor. Thank you for having me. Now, we'll talk a bit about your book uh, a bit later on, but I, I just wanted to start by asking you, because today, of course, is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Um, what were your own personal memories of that day? Well, I'm in Hillsdale College, and 20 years ago, I was on the way to Hillsdale. I teach three weeks a year during my vacation in military history. I teach here at Hillsdale College, and I was in the air and we got a, a notice over the Sierra Nevada mountains. I was leaving from central California that a light plane had crashed into the tower. And it was a, it was a minor accident, but nevertheless, for some reason, the pilot couldn't figure out, we had to go back to the central California airport at Fresno. So we got there and then we were told we were locked out, locked down and no one knew what was going on. And then after two hours, they released people from the airport. I drove to work. I was at the time teaching at Cal State Fresno. And for the first time, the editor of National Review magazine called me and said, Rich Lowry, would you write about this? And I was, I had gone to the lounge in the faculty area and looked at, you know, the, uh, the TV coverage. And I wrote my first column about it. I think the day of the uh, attack. And I, I did that for the next 20 years until this year. So it was a life changing and it was quite stunning. Nobody really knew what it was. Uh, it's easy to look back and critique our reaction to it. But in that general turmoil of the times, there was a sense that whatever the West in general and the United States had done in particular in retaliatory action toward these acts of uh, terrorism, whether that was the Marine barracks explosion of 1983, where we withdrew and then we bombed with the New Jersey uh, areas in the Becca Valley, or we attacked the Tanzania, I mean, East Africa bombings, or we were retaliating against the coal that either that had wet, wetted the beak of the terrorists, we thought, and that there was a new move that even the anti-nation builder, George Bush, who had critiqued the Clinton uh, administration for going into the Balkans and rather than just bombing, try to be engaging, suddenly it was 180 degrees that quasi-Republican isolationists were saying, bombing doesn't work with these people. You've got to go in on the ground and physically remove them. And then somehow that morphed into you have to physically go in, remove them, and then create the conditions on the ground that they will not come back. And then finally, you have to go into the ground and create some type of simulacrum of a Western government because to do anything else would be imperialistic or something. And yeah. that was that devolution that we went into where we ended up 
bogged down in these countries. And now we're going back apparently to the pre 9-11 mindset of retaliatory tit for tat, whack-a-mole or whatever you can call it. Yeah. Carrying on from that, uh, Peter, I, I think you've written in one of those columns or a recent column that it was quite astounding how America did bounce back actually after that uh, economically. Yeah, it was because we went into a, a recession not unlike or perhaps greater than the COVID lockdown recession. And yet you could make the argument that within a year we were booming back. We had taken out, we had gotten a consent from the Congress, we being the American government, the administration of George Bush, he had gotten consent from the Congress and from the UN to take out the Taliban, the abettors and the harborers of uh, Al-Qaeda along the Pakistani border in Afghanistan. We took them out in six weeks, contrary to expectations. And uh, we then had created a sense of deterrence in the Middle East where people were very careful about United States power. And there was sort of a unification, not just within the United States, but I think also within Europe and the United States. There were NATO troops in America that we had quasi evoked Article 5 of the NATO clause. and. Americans were quite happy about that. And then in defense of America, you could make the argument that if you had said on September 11th, that this day, 20 years later, we would not have had a foreign attack. I think people wouldn't have believed you. Yeah. We were talking about serial attacks until we knew what we were doing. Now, it's certainly true that we've been attacked by the Sarnai brothers the Chechen immigrants, the Boston Ma uh, Marathon bombers, or the San Bernardino bombers, or the Fort Hood bombers. But they were of a different caliber, a different species of either American citizens or American residents or immigrants, but they didn't pull off the horrific uh, mag magnitude that the 9-11 bombers. So, and so whatever we did for all of its our fault, we have not had a similar attack. And that's across four different um, administrations. It's some, it's, there is an argument being made now, which I've, 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 I've read, uh, that 9-11 uh, in some ways was a, a cul-de-sac in history, in the sense that uh, I remember at the time, for me, it, it is the defining event of certainly my adult life. Um, and everything was looked at through the prism of 9-11 and, and what you're talking about now. But that now that whole, that whole paradigm, to use that terrible word, has changed. It's all about China now and that all the things represented by 9-11 are of secondary importance. I mean, do you think that that is a valid argument? There's elements of truth to it, but remember it's a, a, a dual argument because it assumes that China has grown far more powerful than it was 2001. And remember, at that time, they had the veneer of conciliation. They were coming to Britain or Europe or the United States with their idea that we are impressed by you. We want our students to come to universities. Uh, although we had Tiananmen Square, we want to liberalize. That's what people thought, that the existing fallacious ideology among Western elites were the more that we give concessions to this new capitalist China, the more that uh, democratization will follow economic liberalization. We never in our mind, I mean, some of us did, but nobody thought that this magnanimity would be 
interpreted as weakness to be exploited, we thought it would be reciprocated and sort of a arrogant idea that they want to emulate our political, cultural, social institutions as well. And that didn't turn out to be true. So China is much more hostile, much more powerful beyond anybody's imagination 20 years ago. And then the flip side is it would assume at your proposition, which I think is correct, it would assume that Islamic terrorism is somewhat less powerful. And I think that there are cosmic events in the Middle East, the Abrams Accord, where we have Arab countries that are closer to Israel due to their common hatred or fear of Iran. The Palestinians have lost some of their international luster. Uh, and until recently, Iran was sort of a Chinese vassal. It still is, but it was suffering from COVID. The sanctions, it was weakened. Hezbollah. And so I think we could say that where China is a dynamic enemy and that radical Islamic terrorism, while it's always going to be a threat to the West, and we saw that in Afghanistan more recently, it's more of a, uh, it's sort of like mowing the grass with them. It's, it's a manageable problem. If we're alert and we're deterrent, we can handle it. We don't know quite what the future holds for 1.4 billion people who are hostile to the United States, and they've created a new fusion between uh, communism and state-run market capitalism. Before we uh, leave this point about 9-11, I, I just wonder, is there a greater understanding, popularly speaking, of the Islamic threat in America? I mean, one is, gets very exasperated, at least here, with the same kind of articles that come round time and time again that you read in the press, uh, which seems to not really understand the very basis of the attack, you know, from Islamism. I, I just wondered if that was the case in America too. Uh, do you think there's still a naivety there? I do. I think almost immediately there was a fault line that developed among the left and participants of what I would call the isolationist right. And they made the argument that while it may not have been wholly deserved, it was at least in part deserved because of our intervention in the Middle East or uh, the 1990, uh, 91 Gulf War or U.S. For they were trying to find some culpability on the part of the United States to justify this. Mm -hmm. And then they immediately exaggerated the reaction uh, in the terms of we were racist, we're anti-Muslim, and it, we got some pretty crazy reactions in this country. And there, remember at the time, Bin Laden and Dr. Zawahiri were saying incredible things, mm -hmm. why they had done it. It was women were walking in the Middle East, Americans, women were walking without covering. We were not involved in climate change. They had every, they took everything out of the progressive book. The other side said, Either we have nothing to apologize for, given that our society is a far more humane one than theirs, and we have no desire to take over their society, and we don't really care what the reason is. We're just going to retaliate to recreate deterrence. And their concern was, for whatever reason, whether it was material or psychological or spiritual or civilizational, the West had lost deterrence and had given the false impression that it was weak, it was decadent, mm -hmm. and people could blow up warships, they could blow up embassies, and then the next logical acceleration of that was the Pentagon 
the Twin Towers indeed if the fourth flight had hit the Capitol. And they were intent on correcting that uh, misassumption on the part of the terrorists. And I think they did that uh, at least up until 2006 when we, when we got stagnant, there was a stagnation in Iraq. Do you think now, um, if we come right up to date with what's happened just with the withdrawal in Afghanistan, uh, what implications are there, do you think, now for our security? I'm talking about terrorism. It's been an ungodly disaster in every, every sense of the word because the Taliban pre-9-11 were not very well armed. They were sort of exoteric renegades in the Middle East. They were not the avatars of radical Islamicism. Now they are drunk on victory. They're boasting that they and they alone, after defeating the Soviets, drove the United States out in shame and humiliation and defeat. And they have, there's a fierce controversy here in the United States over the actual amount of hardware they have, given some of it is over 20 year period and encompasses built-in cost of training. But if you were to use the high figure, 80 to 85 billion, that's the largest transfer in the history of civilization of military weaponry. Yeah. That is 80% uh, of all the amounts that we gave to is Israel during the history of the Jewish state over 70 years plus. That would pay for 900 F-35s, six fleet carriers. Right. So these, these pre-modern terrorists now have created a virtual arms mart in Central Asia where China, Iran, Iran will be buying weapons and China and Russia will be examining weapons to reverse engineering them. And we're gonna be hearing from this these people for the next generation. And more importantly, we're going to have a series of Bo Bergdahl incidents where Americans begin popping up in twos and threes. And we should expect that they'll be paraded on television. They'll confess to pseudo sins that they've done. And we're either playing, playing, paying them bribes now or we will shortly to get them home. Yeah. So the humiliation will be measured and serial and insidious to weaken us. And then as far as all of you guys in the UK and NATO, remember we ask you to come there. Mm -hmm. And whether it was fair or not, you saw us as the greatest military power as sort of the leader spiritually, militarily, and monetarily. And we provided the greatest amount of troops, but we only had anywhere from 35 to 2,500 troops. You guys had 8,000. Mm -hmm. We didn't consult with you. We left Bagram Air Base in humiliation uh, in the in the middle of the night. We left you people there. We didn't co coordinate with you, and so you you I'm, I'm being generic now as far as NATO members. You told us that J Donald Tr Trump's uncouthness in leveraging another hundred million dollars to enhance NATO readiness was wrong. It alienated, but despite his personal invective, he did make the alliance stronger by that yeah, fact. Yeah, yeah. But the adult in the room who returned the bipartisan foreign policy uh, establishment of America so welcomed in the UK and Europe has done more damage, yeah. if not essentially destroyed NATO for a generation. And I don't know how anybody's gonna trust us. So I think we should anticipate very quickly that China will be flying in and out of Taiwanese airspace 
Its ships will go into their sea space. I think North Korea will be testing again. Iran will be accelerating its nuclear development. Russia will have a hard look at NATO countries on the front line, the Baltic states. And they're going to they're going to have all wait and see. They're going to be provocative. They're going to say, you know what? The only way the United States can restore deterrence is to do some physical material act because we don't believe they will. And that's where you get dangerous. It's very easy to lose deterrence, but it's costly and dangerous to restore it. Somebody in this country is going to have to store it because we are a strong country. We have the strongest economy in the world. We've got uh, the top rated universities. We've got the best military, but we're suffering from a crisis of leadership. And people make the, the wrong assumption that we're therefore weak, as the Germans, the Japanese did in your case and in our case. We were much stronger than the Japanese and Hitler, but they didn't believe it because our leadership did not convey that reality. And so people miscalculated. So somebody in this country has got to be an adult in the room. And I'm very worried about that because when you look at Kabul today, and I, I see we, have a, we had a gender studies program at the university. We had a rainbow pride flag at, at the embassy. We had George Floyd murals. Those are all the ruffles and flourishes of a triumphant occupying power insensitive to a traditional Islamic culture. But a weak power who's on the eve of defeat and humiliation, that adds insult to our injury. Mm -hmm. What arrogance to think that we had that power when our military was a shell and our commanders had not a clue and were saying the most absurd things that we have shared agendas with I, apparently a, a new kinder softer Taliban that wanted us out as much as we did and we worked together in partnership which was absurd they wanted us out with humiliation defeat we did not uh, you mentioned their leak, uh, weak leadership <clears throat> obviously um, profoundly weak um, but the fact is Victor as well isn't it that it's an establishment wide thing brought on one would say by well maybe you could call it wokeness or or whatever but it's even uh, affected the military in america hasn't it and there one could say that this action or lack of action in afghanistan is exactly the kind of thing that an administration and establishment like that would do i.e they just simply do not have um don't believe actually in victory they don't believe in strength Yes, and we know historically that the worst thing, whatever the system, constitutional, totalitarian, when you start ideologically purifying the ranks, and as remember that General Austin, our Secretary of Defense, said he was going to go through the ranks and look for whiteness and white rage. That's what General Milley's exact words were. And same thing with Chief of Naval Operations Gilday. Why they, they were lecturing us on this and why we had these murals and pride flags. We know that Joe Biden was lying to us when he said, we've made a lot of progress. They have 300,000 people. They can't collapse. And at that very moment, he was calling the president in Afghanistan and say, even if you're going to collapse, you've got to lie about it because I got to get Basically, I got to get out of here. And he tried to leverage him, essentially saying, well, you know, we can provide air power, but, but, but you've got to lie. So there's something wrong when we had the refugee flights come remember the commentary I, I almost fell over we want to assure americans that we have proper gender ratios on the flight we want to assure americans when the refugees land 
they're going to have culturally sensitive food. And I said to myself, you are requiring, I think wisely, every American in the military to be vaccinated. You're not requiring any of these people to be vaccinated because you've deprecated the value of citizenship. A citizen has less prerogatives than a foreign national. And so there's so many things wrong. And it's I don't want to be hysterical, but when Joseph Stalin went into the Red Army in 37 and 38 and cleansed all of the military talent and reconstituted with ideological hacks, that was one of the reasons he lost deterrence and invited German attacks five years later. If China believes that we are making decisions strategically, tactically, operationally, on, and our personnel on the basis of race or gender or some extraneous circumstances other than military efficacy, then they're going to be emboldened. This is, I don't want to be too eccentric or hysterical even, but the military leadership that we see today, Milley, Gilday, Austin, and the command, is not the military leadership that we saw on 9-11. That group was very accomplished. They went in and they got rid of the Taliban. You can even argue they got rid of Saddam Saddam Hussein in three weeks. Now, later on, it was was a misadventure, but it was very different. We weren't doing this thing 20 years ago, Mm. And, and we don't know the full wages of this. How absurd, isn't it, for the... Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs say they want to explore the toxic nature of whiteness Mm. when in Afghanistan, 74% of all the combat deaths were white males and they died in proportion of double their numbers in the general population. And in Iraq, it was even more disproportional. And put that in the context of Secretary Austin saying, well, we wanted everybody in the military to be proportionally represented by race and promotions and, and flights and everything. I'm thinking when I heard that, I thought, OK, are you going to tell white males of the middle and lower classes you have died in twice your numbers in Iraq? It's time to pull you out and let other people have a chance to die yeah. in their proper ratios, because that's where this absurdity, the logical trajectory ends. Do you think that finally, when it comes to. Biden and who I see as being the symbol of all of this, uh, has the penny dropped, you know, on a wider basis in America? Uh, or are the media, I mean, are the media still apologizing for him or, you know, uh, putting a spin on him or, or, or what? Has the mood changed at all? It has. Initially, they were outraged for a variety of good and bad reasons. And then they closed ranks on him within a week. But now, in the last week, they are critical. And they're critical, I think, maybe for three reasons that come to me all of a sudden. One, he is starting now in his cognitive state uh, state of, I don't know what I could politely call it, but he's cognitively challenged. He's starting to uh, tell the world at large the media prompts. He said, they will not let me uh, answer questions. Or I'm looking here and I, I find out I have to an, ask you the question. Mm-hmm. Or here's the order they gave me. Mm-hmm. And so what it suggests is that he's not in full control of his own destiny, but more even damning that there's some kind of a 
media government fusion where they've kind of collaborated in secret to not report his frailties, in fact, to guide or script his press conference. And yet he's telling the world this. And that is so embarrassing for these media people to be told that they know the script in advance of the very press conference. The second thing is he hit 29, per, uh, excuse me, 39% in the YouGov poll t today. So the media is now looking around saying, as progressives, we got a big midterm election coming up. He's down below Donald Trump's levels, 39%. This man has the ability to destroy the entire democratic and progressive agenda within 18 months. And so we've got to finesse this and criticize him and either pave the way for Kamala Harris, which they're not necessarily looking forward to all that much, given she got zero delegates when she ran for president, or they want some solution to this. And then third, this is not an isolated event. When he had promised the country that by July, there would be no COVID. They would be celebrating July 4th. And he made this astounding announcement that the 300,000 plus deaths under Donald Trump in the previous year were entirely attributable to the chief commander in chief. That was his response. Trump killed, Trump did. Well, now he more people have been lost on his watch and far more per day if they're probated. So all of these things, and I'm not even mentioning the 2 million people who are walking across a border this fiscal year that was secure and closed, the, and the inflation rate at 6%. So the border, the inflation, the racial animosity, the critical race theory, the Afghanistan problem, the end of deterrence, the resurgence of COVID, misdirections at the CDC, the whole Anthony Fauci uh, disinformation about the origins and the gain and function research that we subsidize. These are force multipliers yes. of, of his inability. And so people now are saying, this is not funny anymore. Ha ha, Joe Biden uh, called me by a different name. Joe Biden, you know, he had a little bit of egg on his uh, chin and he licked it up. Ha ha. This was sort of a blood sport for conservative commentators. Now people are starting to say there is a pattern in this astounding first eight months. And it's his cognitive inability to to do much of anything. And we don't want to know who's running the country because he's sort of like the last nine months of Woodrow Wilson's uh, administration where he was non compos mentes and his wife was sort of running the United States. And, and you can make the argument in 1919. Um, some of the things you mentioned in that list there of, of the things facing America, and you mentioned immigration, for example, um, these are themes as well in, in your forthcoming book, aren't they, The Dying Citizen? Um, and you mentioned earlier as well about uh, the soldiers, you know, when you were talking about sort of uh, having to be vaccinated, um, that somehow there is this devaluing of citizenship going on. Um, this is crucial, isn't it? This is the theme of your book, The Dying, Dying Citizen. It is. I would argue that the nexus of all these things that you and I have discussed the real cause of it is that we do not have a powerful idea of citizenship as, as the founders envisioned and which we had held for 220 years. We don't have a strong, we don't have strong enough middle class. Middle class from Aristotle to Tocqueville said they lack the envy of the poor and the subsidies of the poor. And yet 
they don't, they're not crony capitalists, so to speak. They don't unduly influence government. They're autonomous or independent folk. And when you have $1.7 trillion in debt, or when the average American dies with a net worth of $10,000, globalization hollowed out the interior of this country. We also don't have a border, and yet emblematic in Western civilization is from the Greeks on, you have to have your own place, your own particular space. People fought to the death over borders because they knew if they did not have borders, the people could not unite. They couldn't uh, reinforce their constitutions with customs and traditions that were unique to, unique to their physical space. Instead, we've allowed people who are not U.S. citizens and we've extended them every right of a citizen, but no responsibilities. By that, I mean they can leave the country in and out without a passport. They serve in the military. They're eligible for every type of entitlement. The only thing that is left of the shreds of citizenship are voting, and there are illegal aliens that vote in local elections now, and the final one is holding office. I think that domino will follow. And then we have this woke movement. I mean, that's a pre-civilizational, pre-modern idea that we're going to all resort to our ethnic or racial identities as essential rather than incidental to who we are. We know one of the reasons Rome unwound is that people that were stationed in the Danube felt more German than they did Roman. Yeah. And they did not want to go fight in North, North Africa or the Huns or the Goths or the Vandals. All of these tribal peoples were not going to be assimilated. And the culture lost the confidence in its own ability to assimilate people. Multiracial multi constitutional systems are almost unheard of in history. Yeah. And we are, it's a very fragile idea. And we were doing a pretty good job of it 50 years out from the civil rights movement. And we threw that away with a woke movement. Mm -hmm. And then finally, there is a, not a pre-civilizational uh, movement, but a postmodern uh, effort among our elites. We have a huge administrative state as you do. You do. These are unelected officials in the IRS, the FBI, uh, the Pentagon, the woke Pentagon, James Comey, James, uh, Mr. Mueller. They run investigations. They tamper in uh, elections. They fabricate documents. Uh, they violate the code of military, uniform code of military justice that says retired military officers cannot criticize the president. Our president, last president was called Hitler, Mussolini by retired officers. So these people are judge, jury, and executioner, yeah. judicial, executive, legislative. All of that power in the hands of sort of a huge Versailles. And that's what we have. We have people who are evolutionaries. They're so angry they have not been able to get the power they wanted that they're not satisfied with changing the demography of the country. Two million a year will do it very quickly. Yeah in certain states under our electoral college. They flipped California, they flipped Nevada, Colorado, they want they may have flipped Georgia and Arizona, and they want and that's because of demography. But they want to change the electoral college of two hundred and thirty two years, abolish it. They want to bring in uh, two two new states and abolish the sixty year old idea of a fifty state union. They want to destroy a hundred and fifty year tradition of a nine person Supreme Court. They want to destroy a 180-year filibuster. They want to destroy the constitutional precept that individual states create their own laws for national elections. And then finally, we have a lot of cosmopolitans. And I mean that in the ancient 
literal sense of the word, they're globalists, their formal allegiances to some quasi Klaus Schwab, Great Reset Davos idea. You know, when, when Secretary Blinken, Secretary of State Blinken invites the UN to come in and investigate whether we're culpable for racism, then he's really bordering on the idea that we're all to be world citizens and subject this unique experiment in the United States mm. to what? The consensus of the United Nations Committee on Human Rights or something? Mm -hmm. And that's quite dangerous, I think. And I think everybody, especially in the West, should realize that every time there's been an attempt at world governance, there's no mechanism, whether it's Hitler or Mussolini during the League of Nations or during the UN during the Cold War, there's no mechanism to go after real bullies. So as we talk about, we're all going to have kumbaya at the national, international level, then we, we just blink when China subverts the World Health yeah. Organization or in a reckless fashion has a gain of engineering virus escapes because we're afraid of its power. And nobody wants to bell the proverbial uh, China cat. None of it, we mice. We all know we need to do that. But when somebody says, who's going to put the bell around the Chinese cat so we know when it's coming? in terms of ESOP, no one will do it. You do, though, finally, uh, Victor, offer some possible ways out of this, don't you? And, and some Yes, hope. I do. You know, I don't end on a pessimistic note. No, no. I, I try to suggest that for all of the power of institutional wokeness or anti-citizenship movements, we're talking about essentially a communication, a cultural problem. It's Hollywood, it's professional sports, it's academia, it's K through 12, it's the corporations, it's the Pentagon, it's the media, but it is not 51% of the American people. All of these issues that you and I have discussed do not even pull close to 50% approval, mm. whether it's open borders or the economic policies or critical race theory or the way we got out of Afghanistan. But the people, traditionalists, and you can see that in your own country with Brexit. They, they're not in the habit of rocking the boat. They don't. But if you push them far enough, they will start going to school board meetings and say, we're not gonna allow critical race racism. Or they will start to manifest themselves in registering to vote and get out, and that's happening. And I think we're gonna have a huge correction. I think also that people think, if you allow the cancel culture and the social media electronic guillotine to have full sway, then they're gonna devour, it's a Frankenstein monster that's gonna devour themselves. So we're starting to see particular ethnic groups, Mexican-American people who are not for this. We're starting to see particular liberal academics that said, I have, I'm afraid I'm being watched in class. Mm. You're starting to see very wealthy liberal parents who say, I'm, I'm woke, but if you're only letting in 13% of your entering class in Harvard or Stanford or Princeton as white males, and my son is a brilliant white male with perfect credentials, and it's very important to my sense of self that he goes to Stanford, or, and that's not happening to you, then you're going to see mm -hmm. privately at first uh, defections from this minority woke view. These people have no ideology, and I'll just finish with a cynical observation that if you look at the architects, Ms. Queller is a BLM, the cultural Marx is on her fourth house she's now bought. She lives as a resident in essentially all white Topanga Canyon. And if you look at Professor Kendi, 
He's now charging $330 a minute in his $20,000 Zoom chats for penance for guilty corporate grandees. And if you look at uh, Tal Nahisi Coates, who was one of the early architects, he's writing comic books uh, now and comic book scripts for Hollywood. He's a multimillionaire. So a cynic would say that this top-down, elite-driven, woke revolution is really uh, an, an attempt of uh, corporate, government, academic elites that are trying to re, I don't know what we call, reformulate the deck chairs on the corporate Lido deck. Yeah, That's yeah. what they're after. Yeah, yeah. It's about power. Mm-hmm. They have no saleable agenda that the people want. So we're a sleeping dragon and they've been poking it and poking it and poking it. And they think it's toothless. I think it's going to wake up. I sincerely hope so. Uh, um, Look, uh, your book again is out on the 4th of October, isn't it? And uh, yes, I think it, if anyone who wants to, you know, make sure that the, uh, the dragon is prodded, then they should read it, I think. Um, thank you very, very much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. And I hope it's not that long before we see you again. Thank you very much, Victor. Same um, here. Thank you. That's it for what you're saying is. So uh, we shall see you next time. Thank you very much.